So Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. And then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill, and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning you will open our hearts and our minds by your Holy Spirit to your word and your word to our hearts and our minds. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, in our studies in Luke's Gospel, we've got to a famous parable, the famous parable of Jesus, and it's the dishonest manager parable. So will you open your Bibles at page uh, 875 uh, and Luke 16, 1 to 13. Uh, this is the passage uh, for this morning. And uh, you'll see from the outline on the back of your uh, notice sheet that I want to speak first about the parable uh, itself and then secondly Uh, about the lessons from the parable, and thirdly, about money's use. Well, first, the parable uh, itself. And uh, by way of introduction, let me say this is one of, if not the most difficult, of uh, Jesus' parables to understand and interpret. Perhaps you then say, well, what is the use of this parable for us today if it's so hard to understand? Well, the answer is... uh, given in a remark of uh, Mark Twain, who, uh, sure, was no great Bible lover, but on one occasion he said this. I won't attempt an American accent, but he said, it is not, or it ain't, to quote verbatim, those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bothers me. 
It is the parts that I do understand. And that is so important. The point is that the Bible is clear enough negatively to provoke uh, Twain and positively to challenge and to encourage believers. And that is nowhere truer than in this parable, as we shall see. So how do you understand something of what the dishonest manager did? What can we say about him? Well, first, he was an estate manager uh, of someone like the Duke of uh, Northumberland. But somehow he carelessly or dishonestly managed the estate and incurred significant losses. Verse 1 says, the man was wasting his master's possessions. There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Uh, and we're to take this as a true accusation because uh, the manager never defended himself or contradicted it. He accepted the charge, so he was fired. Verse 2, he, his master, called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So the master wanted final accounts. Uh, he wanted the manager's successor to have a clean sheet uh, with which to start. Well, then we come to verses 3 to 7. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Well, what do you uh, make uh, of uh, all that? The man is obviously not wanting a laboring job uh, on being sat uh, and has too much self-respect to go on the streets to beg, as verse 3 reminds us, or tells us. So he's decided... Uh, what to do, namely this, make people indebted uh, to him and friendly with him so that when he soon has no tied house or home, uh, he has at least somewhere to live. Uh, verse 4, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Then verses 5 to 7 tell us exactly what he did next. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and write, uh, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. His solution was simple. To reduce the amounts of money people were owing the estate. Oil and wheat, by the way, could be used in those days like we use money. Then the master's clients or tenants, with their debts reduced, would have been pleased with the windfall uh, and with the uh, manager. Now this may have been a straight fiddling uh, of the books with the clients aiding and abetting the deceit. But that would hardly be classed as shrewd or clever. Anybody can just lie. Uh, be dishonest. But is there another alternative explanation? Well, one explanation comes from the fact that strict Jews refused uh, 
to have loans, interest uh, on, uh, re they refused interest on loans. But uh, some got round things by having a commission added to the loan. And uh, this extra could be taken by the manager uh, as a fee and on which he lived. So if this was happening here, what this manager was doing was uh, not so much robbing his master, but actually forfeiting his own commission. Uh, the dishonesty of the manager must then refer to the charges mentioned in uh, verse 1 and him wasting his master's possessions. Uh, it does not refer to these transactions, which were like a shrewd uh, insurance scheme. Well, be all that as it may, whatever the analysis of his actions, one thing is crystal clear from uh, the first part of verse 8. Somehow, for whatever reason, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Uh, and the master could be Jesus or the master uh, of the manager. Either way, the point is the same. What is being commended is not the manager's dishonesty, which is recognized, but his shrewdness in planning for his future. And the value of such foresight is the lesson Jesus is teaching us here. So whatever was going on, this is clear. The dishonest manager is being commended for his shrewdness in taking action in the light of his future needs and keeping in mind the hard realities he will be facing in the future. And that brings us secondly to the lessons for us from it, this parable. Look at the second part of verse 8. This is a vital lesson for us to all to accept. And remember, it's Jesus' teaching. He says, The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And here is a real problem, not of interpretation, but of fact. Remember, too, at this point, Jesus is especially talking to his disciples. Um, if you uh, look uh, back to verse 1, uh, we read, He, Jesus, said to the disciples. And um, as you can see from looking across the page to chapter uh, 15, verse 1, Jesus had been talking up to now to tax, tax collectors, sinners, and Pharisees. So this parable and its les lessons are especially for the committed, for disciples. Jesus is now saying to them that on average... Pagans and non-believers have no thoughts beyond this present life, but they are more shrewd with their money and possessions for their futures than believers, uh, the sons of light, are for their futures, which of course involve eternity. And Jesus is so fired up about this, as you can see from those four opening words of the next verse, verse 9. And I tell you, that's quite distinct in the original. He's being absolutely emphatic. It's as though he was saying, well, if you forget everything else, remember this. And what is this? Well, it's the command in verse 9. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, here Jesus is telling his disciples to make use of unrighteous wealth, meaning money especially, to make friends uh, for the world to come and in respect of those eternal dwellings. 
But what precisely does that mean? Well, let me give you five considerations. First, what Jesus is not meaning. He's not meaning use money in unrighteous ways or use money acquired through unrighteous methods to achieve good purposes. Certainly not. For he's only calling money or wealth unrighteous because uh, in this fallen world, money uh, is uh, nearly always a temptation. By itself, money is neutral. But it's acquisition, how you get it, uh, and then it's use, how you use it, can so often be unrighteous or immoral. So because of this possible misuse, the word unrighteous needs to attach itself uh, to the word money as a permanent warning. It's a bit like the word poison stuck to uh, uh, a bottle, say, of liquid weed killer. That is quite okay if used properly, but it's not taken as a drink. Secondly, what Jesus also is not meaning is that you can buy your way into heaven. For no amount of money or good works is enough for that. Christ's death alone can pay the debt of your and my sin. But then thirdly, Jesus is positively meaning this in verse 9. You are to use your wealth to prepare for your eternal future by helping others to prepare for their eternal future. So you need to use your brains as well as your money to work shrewdly or strategically for the health and growth of God's church and kingdom. Uh, that is both for now, but especially in the light of this eternal future. And fourthly, that is because one day money and wealth will fail if not through an economic crash, certainly at your death. 1 Timothy 6 verse 7 says, We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Uh, that's words uh, we regularly say at funeral services. So in the light of all that, Jesus says, verse 9, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So when money fails, particularly at death, because your resources have helped people trust in Christ and materially, you will have friends in heaven. And fifthly, someone who lacks such friends, so that we can understand what this is meaning, is described for us actually at the end of Luke 16. You read there of a man who had wealth, but he obviously had used it unrighteously. Now, this is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which looks beyond death and judgment and speaks of heaven and hell. It tells how when the rich man died, he had not even one friend to uh, receive him or greet or welcome him into the eternal dwellings. Rather, he read, we read, we, he himself ended up in Hades in torment. Lazarus, on the other hand, was the poor beggar at his gate whom the rich man had ignored during his lifetime and had not helped with his riches. But he now sees Lazarus far off at Abraham's side and obviously happy but across a great chasm. So chapter 16 and verse 9 about spending money to make friends for eternity seems to presuppose and anticipate the second coming of Jesus, judgment day and the final judgment. 
And the, in the light of that, you need to make sure you're not like the rich man. First, you need to be right with God yourself through getting to the point where you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, as Paul says in Romans 10, verse 9. Then in this life, you are to be strategic and godly with your money now so that your money helps others materially, uh, but also spiritually and helps win them for Christ ultimately to be in heaven to welcome you. Now exactly how spending money to make friends for eternity to works out for different individuals uh, depends on our resources and a host of other factors uh, and including for some of us whether we are economically more like the rich man or Lazarus. But the gist of Jesus' teaching is clear. It is really a command to use your money uh, as you can to help others and to help uh, church growth and evangelism and to outsmart the pagan world in doing so. Uh, commenting on verse 9 and its focus on planning for our eternal futures, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, a great New Testament scholar, writes this. A man or woman who constantly remembers that they will have, a, to, to, they will have to render an account of their stewardship of these things, money or possessions, when they appear before the tribunal of Christ, will be less inclined to expend them in a worldly manner. Well, that brings us to, the, to money's use. How do you spend your money and use your wealth? How are you going to respond to the JPC and uh, St. Joseph's Gift Week? Actually, when this series was devised, I uh, uh, didn't know this parable uh, of uh, the dishonest manager would be the set passage for uh, a time of, of, of a gift week. It seems, therefore, providential. For it is so relevant because our giving is strategic uh, and we need to give shrewdly. Uh, it is to enable work, uh, the work at Jesmond and at St. Joseph's to continue praying its way and helping to make friends for the gospel uh, in a desperately needy uh, society, spiritually speaking. Uh, yes, that work is strategic and such work costs money. Uh, the cost of our work for 2016 uh, will be just under 1.3 million. Uh, but we praise God that our office predicts that if people continue their regular giving, just over 1.2 million uh, will have been given by the end of December, and for which we indeed praise God. But the 85,000 is the need to pay our way and make up that uh, predicted shortfall. It is strategic when you put uh, all uh, that into the context of the billions that are being spent in this country uh, on so much, and in this city, on so much, which is entirely godless or even anti-godly. By uh, comparison, tiny amounts are being spent on Christ and his kingdom. For example, with regard to our children and young people at Jesmond and St. Joseph's, uh, just a few hundreds of pounds per child uh, is the cost of children's work per year. But uh, it's thousands of pounds per child through our taxes uh, for their secular schooling where Christian, the Christian worldview and faith uh, is often being diluted or minimised. So bear these facts in mind as you think about verses 10 and 12 of Luke 19 where Jesus says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. 
And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Again, this relates to eternity. True, there is much we do not understand about heaven uh, and hell, and so some of the allusions in these verses. Uh, but that shouldn't surprise you. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 famously says, that's in the Old Testament, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And in the New Testament, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when Christ returns, face to face. Uh, so there are things we won't understand, and why some of these things are always uh, difficult for us in our present state on earth uh, to know and understand. But what has been revealed by Jesus, both through uh, his parable of the talents in Matthew 25 and also in his parable of the ten meaners in Luke 19 is this, that his faithful followers will be rewarded in heaven one day by having a great inheritance. And this will correlate with how they have stewarded what has been entrusted to them in this life. And by comparison with the immensity of what they will have in heaven, what they're stewarding in this life is tiny. In Luke 19, this will be coming to it, uh, uh, God willing, in another year. Um, in Luke chapter 19, the servant who had, been, who had made the nobleman's um, one mina into ten minas was given authority over ten cities. And the one who had made his one mina into five was given authority over five cities. Now this uh, illustrates how our God is a great giver. And he wants to give you infinitely more in heaven than he's given you on earth. One mina is about 6,000 pounds at today's prices. And... Think of that as your stewardship in this life. But in heaven, God is wanting to translate that into the equivalent of cities worth billions of pounds more and with no worries and cares. Now, yes, this is imaginary in a parable, but this is how Jesus wants to stimulate your imagination as you think of heaven. So how foolish not to be a faithful steward now. How suicidally and eternally foolish not to trust in Christ in the first place. And there seems to be allusion to that inheritance, or whatever those cities represent, in verses 10 and 12 of Luke 18, uh, 16. Verse 10, uh, one who is faithful in a little, very little, is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, understand that in this life, who will entrust to you the true riches? Understand that inheritance of cities 
or the equivalent, in the age to come. And verse 12, and if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, understand God's gifts to you now, which you're stewarding on his behalf, who will give you that which is your own? Understand that inheritance that you're going to uh, have in heaven or could have in heaven. But perhaps someone says, how can I be as faithful as I should be with all God has entrusted to me in this life, including my money? Well, Jesus might say, think about this, the conclusion to this parable, which you've got there in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So I conclude with two related questions. One, have you noticed that Jesus says you cannot, not should not, but cannot serve God and money? So the second question is, who this morning needs to put God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, first in their life and not money? Let's pray, shall we? Just a moment of uh, quiet prayer. We're all at different stages and uh, positions with regard to uh, how we're responding to the things God has given us, not only money, uh, but other forms of wealth and possessions and other gifts uh, where we haven't got money and how are we using them for the Lord. And let's pray as we need to pray individually and for the church. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers.